Good morning, and I thank your pastor, your leaders, and all of you for the privilege of bringing you the ministry of the gospel today. Our topic, and Pastor David proposed this to me, I was glad to accept it, our topic is marriage and the gospel. The Christian gospel is not Jesus yelling at us, saying, do better, try harder, pedal faster. The Christian gospel is Jesus saying to us, I loved you, but I lost you, and I want you back. And I've opened the way through my cross. You can come freely. So we're going to spend our time together taking two steps. One, how the Bible defines marriage. Maybe you've heard it said, as I have, you know, there are so many different sort of marital arrangements in the course of Scripture. Solomon had 700 wives, for crying out loud. So the Bible isn't clear about a definition of marriage. No, the Bible is clear. We can see that clarity, and it's better than any arrangement we would have come up with. Step two how the Bible dignifies marriage and sexuality. There is nothing in Christ we should feel embarrassed about, we should worry about, anything we need to filter out, brace ourselves against. If you had a Rembrandt original hanging in the living room of your your home, you wouldn't apologize for it. And the Bible dignifies marriage and human sexuality as a masterpiece of glorious artistry created by God. Now, we're not good at living it out. But still, the beauty God created, the glory, it's still there. So step one, how does the Bible define marriage? The key text is in Genesis chapter 2. Now, let's pretend just as a thought experiment that we're reading the Bible for the very first time. We start at page 1, of course, and we don't know anything about it. We read Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in chapter 1 is cosmic and huge and impressive and sparkling and amazing and glorious. Everything is. And we turn the page. We're going to read chapter 2. We think, wow. What will the sequel be? Where is this going? So we turn to chapter 2. We read it. And the lens zooms into a garden where a young man and a young woman fall in love and get married. And we think, huh. It seems sort of out of its depth. It's kind of a letdown after chapter 1. What's going on here? The Bible raises that question, but it doesn't fully answer that question until the very end, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. But there is a reason the biblical story starts out with the theme of marriage. The whole Bible is a love story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as the home of the first couple, Adam and Eve, 
And in the end, God will create the new heavens and the new earth as the home of the eternal couple, Christ and his bride. Marriage is the wraparound category, the total theme of the entire Bible. The gospel is a story of love given, love received, then love betrayed, rejected, crucified, love resurrected, exalted, and out to win us back. The Bible tells that love story. So here's the point. Since marriage really is the way we understand the whole of Scripture, it's the key to grasping what the message really is all about. That being the case, if we cave on the Bible's definition of marriage, we will lose not just a few passages here and there, we will lose the whole message. If Jesus is our true and better husband forever, then to compromise on what is so dear to him, so meaningful, so precious to him, is to insult him where his heart toward us is the most tender. We don't want to do that. We have strong reasons to revere the biblical vision of marriage. So let's look at it in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to go to verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now that's amazing right there. <laughs> we're in the garden of Eden, for crying out loud. Everything is perfect. And God puts his finger on something in the Garden of Eden. He says, it is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him, or more literally translated, but as for Adam, he did not find a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage did not rise up from human social evolution. Democracy did. And I happen to believe democracy is a great idea. 
let's keep it. But marriage came down through divine revelation. Marriage is of God. Wedding ceremonies, the Bible doesn't address wedding ceremonies, what should happen in a wedding. Those are culturally conditioned, but marriage itself was divinely created. And verse 24 is the key. So, when anyone asks you how the Bible defines marriage, Genesis 2.24 is your go-to verse. So, we can think of Genesis chapter 2 like this. It's as if Moses wrote this. It's as if we're sitting in his living room and we're not reading a book in, in this scenario where he's showing us a DVD or whatever the latest technology is. Uh, he's showing us a DVD of what happened in the Garden of Eden. He's telling the story of Genesis 2 visually, okay? So we're, he, he shows us he shows us God breathing life into Adam and Adam naming the animals and so forth. And then we, we notice a puzzled look comes over Adam's face. This strange feeling enters his heart after he's named all these animals. He sees them pairing off and so forth. And God says to Adam, son, that, that strange feeling, with, we, we, we call that loneliness. But don't worry about it. I've got this. Lie down, go to sleep. And Adam does, falls into a deep sleep. And God opens up his side and takes flesh from his very body and like Jesus multiplying the loaves of bread and the fish for the 5,000, God takes that flesh, he heals the wound and builds this lovely, precious lady. Eve, Adam's equal and his completion. And there she stands, the very first woman ever, adorned with the glory of God, dignified, regal. And God says to her, Honey, I want you to just stand over there for a moment. Don't worry about a thing. I'll come get you. Everything's fine. I'll be right with you. Off she goes. And, and, and the Lord bends down. He touches Adam and he says, Now, wake up, son. I have one more creation, my best one. I would like to introduce her to you. And you're going to give her a name. And then like the father of a bride... God leads Eve out to Adam. <laughs> it is love at first sight. Kaboom. Now, by the way, there were other, in the ancient world in Moses' day, there were other accounts of the beginning of all things. For example, the Babylonians had their own sort of creation account. But in that narrative, the Babylonian account doesn't even mention the distinct creation of the man and the woman. The Bible celebrates the creation of marriage and romance and human sexuality because, ultimately because, as we'll see in due course, God's love for us is not emotionless and cold, 
But God's love for us pouring out of his heart is overflowing with the kind of euphoric joy we experience in romantic love. In verse 23, we hear the very first recorded human words, and they are poetry from a man in love. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Unlike the animals, they're fine, they have their place, they're interesting, but she has my heart. And, and notice, Adam is, is not saying you. He's not talking to Eve. You are bone of my bones and so forth. He's talking to God about her. He is praising God for her. She is overhearing him give glory to God for her creation, the gift that she is from God. And Adam seals their romance with spiritual commitment in the presence of God. In 1944, my dad proposed to my mom with a verse of Scripture. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. What a great way to start. And they did. And on my mom's grave in California today are inscribed these words, magnifying the Lord with Ray and exalting his name together. Wow. What a great way to end. And maybe here today are married couples who haven't yet sealed that commitment to Christ together. You can do that today. Your romance needs more than you. You can't sustain it. But if the heart of God beats for you too, you both, with yearnings of this tender and intimate and profound nature, then why not invite him into your romance? His presence makes everything better. How can it not get better with him there? So why not decide now? even if you've made some mistakes, and who of us hasn't, right? Why not decide now, this afternoon, let's kneel down together at home and thank, I want to thank God for her. She will thank God for me. It, is, it will be all of grace. And we're going to open up to him, to his heart for us both this afternoon, and go home, invite him in. He makes every party better. It was Jesus at that wedding in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 2, he brought the best wine. So maybe send him an invitation, even if it's a little late. He'd be glad to come. He will come. Now, verse 24 is the biblical definition of marriage. So, okay, we're in Moses' living room. We're watching the DVD. 
At this point, as we come to verse 24, Moses picks up the remote, he hits pause, the action on the screen freezes. Moses, we're all sitting there with him. He turns to us living in the year 2023. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We're living, we're, we're flawed people in a broken world. He turns to us today. He points to the screen and he says, therefore, because of what happened back then, the Garden of Eden is why a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and in the world today, they will become one flesh as a married couple. It all started back in the Garden of Eden. And amazingly, when Adam and Eve sinned and, and God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, not forever, the cross opened the way back. When God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, he didn't say, I'm taking my gift of marriage back. You have not handled it well. You've not stewarded, stewarded it well. It's over. I'm taking it back. No. He let us keep his sacred gift, which means your marriage is a remnant of the Garden of Eden. Is your marriage imperfect? Is our marriage imperfect? Yes. Is it amazing? Yes. Imperfect and amazing go really well together. So here then is how the Bible defines marriage. We see it in the last two words of verse 24, one flesh. That's biblical shorthand for one mortal life fully shared. They shall become one flesh, one mortal life, fully shared. Marriage is a man and a woman joined by covenant, joined by vows, journeying together hand in hand through the wilderness of this world, not as two separate persons with a convenient arrangement of their own invention, but now two joined together as one with one purpose, one story, one suffering, one joy, one bed, one budget, one reputation, one intimacy and partnership and alliance, Amen. eclipsing all others. And not even the children are inside that circle, the circle of the one flesh union. And so on their wedding day, as they take their vows, this was sure true of me on my wedding day, less true of my wife, but on our wedding day, what happens, all of us, two selfish me's start learning to think like and act like one unified us. It's an adjustment. And it's really worth adjusting to. So, neither one is, is saying or thinking, I really like you, but this part of my life over here, I've cordoned this off, I've roped this off, you have no access here. But both come together, both husband and wife, in complete openness, surrender, transparency, as long as we both shall live. 
one mortal life fully shared. That's the marriage according to the Bible. So, friendship is fabulous. There's not enough friendship in this world, obviously, but marriage is more than friendship. Healthy friendships have boundaries. Healthy friends don't share everything. But married people do share everything. That's the whole point of one flesh union. Our world doesn't see marriage that way. Our world, it's, it's like this. If I understand the thinking of our, our moment in time, our world sees all relationships along a continuum, and over at one extreme end is the category enemy, and over at the other end is the category friend, and marriage is obviously with all different grades and distinctions along the way. And marriage obviously is over at the friend end of the continuum, but it's just an extreme form of friendship. And our generation is thinking, since same-sex friendship is good, same-sex marriage is also good. That's what we're told. But that way of thinking is not the expansion of marriage. That is the redefinition of marriage. The Bible just doesn't see marriage anywhere along that continuum. The Bible puts marriage at another level, one flesh with no boundaries. That's why, according to Scripture, sex is involved in marriage only. Sexual intercourse seals, symbolizes, and refreshes the one flesh union of husband and wife as God designed it. So, now we understand what's at stake. Today's redefinition of marriage, it's not a single issue. The redefinition of marriage comes out of a total worldview, a total account of human meaning, and brings with it a total worldview, not dignified with the purpose and glory of God. It's just something we keep reinventing. On the other hand, the biblical definition of marriage comes out of a total worldview and brings with it a total worldview, a full account of all things that is dignified with the purpose and glory of God. So however any of us might define marriage, let's all admit this is not just a single issue, isolated, narrow case. The Bible is saying something aud audacious about everything by saying something audacious about marriage. The Bible is saying, by its teaching on marriage, beginning in Genesis 2, from the get-go, the Bible is saying that the heart of God is being revealed to us as a love that gives without counting the cost, in response to which we give him our all without counting the cost, and we, by his grace, become one spirit with him. 
But if we establish our own made-up versions of marriage, if we legitimate other sexual expressions, then we're turning away not from tradition. We're turning away from God. And then while we're at it, if we're just going to do whatever advances our momentary happiness, why not get more people involved in marriage? Why not get more of everything tossed in? if we feel like it. But then, farewell to the Garden of Eden forever by our own choice. Here's what faithful Christians believe. On their wedding day, a husband and wife, through their sacred vows and their covenant, step inside the circle of the one flesh union, and here is the precious gift God gives that man and that woman there in that sacred place. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That not ashamed, that negative way of stating it is a rhetorical device for making a strongly positive affirmation. The man and his wife were just crazy happy, giddy with joy. Both were vulnerable, both, and both were accepted, honored dignified, enjoyed, loved, not shamed at all. The woman was not exploited. The man was not predatory. Both were dignified by their complete openness to each other. Marriage as God intended it brings into this brutal world a tenderness where both a husband and a wife are safe. So that's the first thing, how the Bible defines marriage. One flesh, meaning one man with one woman for one lifetime, everything fully shared as they walk their journey through this world. Now, we revere that de definition. None of us has really lived up to it. So let's turn to the New Testament because three times the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24. And not once does the New Testament look at Genesis 2.24 as something out of date or no longer relevant. But we see clear affirmation of Genesis 2.24 three times in the New Testament bringing redemption to people like us in the world today. So first, the first New Testament quotation of Genesis 2.24 
is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce. The Pharisees want to debate divorce. Jesus changes the subject. No, let's rejoice over marriage. They want to have a hair-splitting debate. Jesus wants to, to get us all rejoicing. So the topic, clearly, since the conversation begins about divorce, this is about marriage in the world today. This is about us. And I read in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female and said, here's the quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And look at this. Our Lord said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. No, we might wonder. It's 2023. The Garden of Eden was so long ago, so ancient. It's so distant, so remote from us. Are we today stuck with 19th hand marriage at best? Jesus, we might wonder that. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, and he does not say marriage as God first made it was great while it lasted. But that's long gone by now. Too bad for you. He doesn't say that, nor does he say, sure, we all know that old verse. It's there in the Bible, but we've moved on. That's passe. We're smarter now. No, Jesus sees Genesis 2.24 as directly relevant to us and our imperfect marriages today. He sees God at work in our marriages today just as much as in the Garden of Eden. What therefore God has joined together. On their wedding day, a husband and wife do not become one by the minister's words, but by God's act, which we take on faith because Jesus said this. He taught us this. We're following him. But Jesus is saying even more than God joined Adam and Eve together. He's also saying that God is equally present in every troubled marriage in the world today. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, we're all flawed people, therefore every marriage is in some way, to some degree, disappointing. Your disappointing marriage today is as sacred in the sight of God as was the completely non-disappointing marriage of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is not a hand-me-down. Your marriage is a grace from above. Your marriage is a miracle. Your marriage is of God. He values 
your disappointing marriage. His touch of blessing is upon you. He thinks your marriage is worth fighting for. And if your heart is broken, so is his. And he only wants to help. And he can help. The second time the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24 is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a theology of the human body. If I had written the Bible, I never would have written this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It wouldn't have occurred to me. This is bold. This is industrial strength theology right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. Follow as I read. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? That physical coupling, one body. For as it is written, here's the quote, and this time it's not the whole of the verse. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So one body is what we call a hookup. One, flare, one flesh is marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So we've got three categories here. One body, one flesh, one spirit. The one flesh union of marriage is highly compatible with the one spirit union we have with our Lord. They go well together. The one body momentary hookup violates both. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I hope you have accepted Christ. Please do. But when you do, it's not just you accepting him, it's him joining you to himself as one spirit with his heart forever. This is very profound. So Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Lord Jesus Christ at his cross paid a price for you, and he has no buyer's remorse. And God, your creator father, who gave you your body, he's not having second thoughts about that. He's not wishing to take it back. He's not regretting that he gave you sexuality. The Christian gospel is not only about the salvation of the soul. The Christian gospel includes the redemption of the body. He's going to give you your body back 
as he gave Christ his body back on that first Easter Sunday. You're going to get your body back forever. Amazing. That's part of the gospel. Our Lord is not squeamish. He's not a platonic philosopher of the ancient world who thought that the body is just this icky thing. It is the humblest part of us. But if it's good enough for God, it's got to be okay. You can be at peace with the fact that you have a body. God is. Now, we might wonder, why is Christianity, why does it make such a big deal about sex? Why the carefully guarded, carefully defined sexual norms and and boundaries and parameters and so forth? The reason is, the reason Christianity cares about our bodies and our sexuality is that the Holy Spirit dignifies our bodies. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of God into our bodies. Your body has become a sacred space. And if anyone violates your sacred body, they are picking a fight with God and he's on your side. Verse 15 asks, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I mean, the the, the logic of this passage is so bold. Your hands and, and feet and your sexuality are the bodily members of Christ, the limbs of Christ, the organs of Christ, bringing his presence into the world today. The living Christ has gotten so involved with us that even our sexuality is joined to him. That's the whole force of the passage. The gospel inspires sexual integrity by honoring our bodies. Christianity has high standards for sexual integrity, not because the human body is disgusting, but precisely for the opposite reason. God values and honors our bodies. God has a purpose of grace and glory for our bodies. Let's walk with him toward that purpose of grace and glory. So in moments of temptation... Moments of pressure, moments of decision and temptation. If our poor bodies could speak to us, they might say something like this. Wait, you're thinking about what? You're going to do what with me? Please don't do that. Me. You might not have any respect for me at all, but Jesus values me. Please don't do that with me. Treat me as a part of Jesus because he says, I am. So verse 18 is urgent. Flee from sexual immorality. It is foolish to see how close we can get to the line with actually, without actually sticking our toe over that line. God calls us to run in the opposite direction. There is nothing petty and small about the moral law of God. He has put his glory in us and all over us. 
all of us. We could not be more dignified. The world will never say these things about us. You literally have to get in your car and drive down to church on Sunday morning to find out what you're really worth. The third time the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24 is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 32. Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And now the quote begins, but I want to show you something. In the, between the statement, we are members of his body, and then the beginning of the quote, notice what's happening. In the context of Genesis 22, God creates Eve from the very body of Adam, and then the text says, that's why a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall become one flesh. That's the logic of it. Now look at Ephesians 5. We are members of Christ's body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and get married and they become one flesh. Do you see the difference? Why do people fall in love and get married? Ultimately, the reason is the gospel. When a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, whether they know it or not, they are a living declaration of the gospel, of Christ and his love for his bride and her glad surrender to him. I mean, like, wow. I mean, now we know the ultimate reason why this keeps happening in the world. Romance. And a couple start to notice each other and they have a date and they hold hands and they kind of... Romantic love is, is sort of, I think it's a kind of temporary insanity. We, we go crazy because only that, if we were in our right minds, we would never take marriage vows. So God says, I'm going to take away their sanity. I'm going to give them this. They're going to go nuts. And that will sort of lift them and catapult them into the marriage vows. And then after we get married, kind of wears off a little bit after a while, but never completely goes away. And we have spikes of crazy all along the way. It's wonderful. Why does this keep happening? Because marriage is a prophetic declaration of the gospel to the world. We Christians put the gospel on display with full awareness and with glad purpose. Now, marriage doesn't look impressive at one level. Paul says here in the passage, it's a profound mystery. Why does he say that? Precisely because it doesn't look like a profound mystery. It's common. Jenny and I have been married for over 51 years. I've introduced her to, to new friends as my wife many times. No one has ever once said, wait a minute, 
She's your wife? So, like, you guys are married? That's a profound mystery. No, marriage happens all the time. That's why Paul says it. He is alerting us to the glory God has shed abroad in this world. Your marriage points to, embodies, bespeaks, whispers the ultimate romance. Let's see the amazingness. Okay, so here are some takeaways to conclude. One, personal takeaways. One, every marriage has problems because we're involved. (laughs) But marriage itself is not a problem. According to Genesis 2, God gave us marriage as a remedy. Let's not attach blame to the gift God gave. That doesn't actually help us. Two, according to Matthew 19, your marriage is no less of God than the marriage of Adam and Eve. Your marriage is your personal Garden of Eden. Receive it with wonder. Three, according to 1 Corinthians 6, the risen Christ so values, dignifies, cherishes your very body. He has made you a sacred place. Listen. You're clean again. He is with you. He lives in you. And he's happy to be there. Four, according to Ephesians 5, people who will never darken the door of a church to hear the gospel, relatives, neighbors, friends, colleagues, they will see the gospel in your imperfect but still profound marriage. You are making a statement. You are a statement of the gospel. You're doing better than you think. Way to go. God bless you. Let's pray. Our dear and blessed Lord, you astound us and you amaze us with how committed you are, how involved you are, how present you are. We thank you. We receive you. We welcome you. We rejoice in you. Now lead us in those very areas of life where we're not doing well and help us right there, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.